All right, the call part two. So Bruce Tim, and I believe he mentions this on the special features, has one, well, probably has several problems with this episode he's gone on record as saying, but one of his main problems with this episode is that of all the things they could do with the the concept of Superman and the Batman Beyond time period, of all the things they could do, they decided to just make him the bad guy again, which is basically what they had just done in his last appearance in uh, in Legacy. And I suppose there's some truth to that. That problem becomes less, uh, well, problematic in retrospect if you watch Justice League and Justice League Unlimited in the middle, in between Legacy and, and Rebirth, then you get all that, you know, all the, all those episodes of Superman being the good guy, and so you're kind of primed for him in a different role again when this rolls around. So despite the fact that having Justice League and JLU in existence creates some problems for this episode, that's one that it actually alleviates. So here, um, it's interesting because Barda, of all the League members that Terry shows this video to, Barda seems to be the one who's least inclined to believe it, and she has a line when she's talking to Superman later where she says, you know, you know I'd never betray you, and she calls him Cal, which I don't believe any of the others do. They all just call him Superman. <clears throat> Leads me to believe that, uh, and, and they've said that she's supposed to be sort of like his second, of, second in command in this episode. She's sort of taking the Wonder Woman spot, but I guess the fact that they have history that goes back 50 years, the fact that she was sort of an ally of the League all the way back to the ties that bind 50 years earlier in, in, uh, in JLU Season 4, the fact that they have that history gives her a, a place of prominence in the League and makes her less inclined to believe that Superman may have become evil. But really, that line would work better with Wonder Woman, because you would have all that history in there already, without having to think about it. Now here's Warhawk, alive, which, as I said last time, makes no sense. He says he wasn't in the armor, but there was really no time for him to get out of it. That, plus the fact that he's wearing the armor, so unless he has, like, multiple copies, did he, like, run home naked and put on his spare suit of armor, or... Anyway... The other thing is, if you're watching this knowing that Warhawk is uh, John Stewart and Shayara Hall's son, you begin to wonder, well, okay, if those wings are armored, does he not have real wings, and why is his skin tone so light if he, you know, if, if his father was African-American, shouldn't he have darker skin, And but who knows how human Thanagarian crossbreeding works. Now, one of the things that I wanted to mention was this episode is noteworthy, well, for several reasons, but one of the reasons it's noteworthy to me is that it 
shows this future version of Superman where he has aged quite clearly. Now, they give him a line when he's talking to Bruce that indicates that Kryptonians age, or at least Kryptonians living under a yellow sun, age much slower than regular humans, but still clearly do age. Now, I wanted to mention that because that's not always the case. In various future versions of DC Comics history, such as ones that everyone knows, being like The Dark Knight Returns, Superman doesn't always age. In Dark Knight Returns, he remained, you know, he looked like he was eternally 29. You know, the the perfect young, godlike figure uh, contrasted against Bruce Wayne, who had aged, you know, quite quite noticeably and quite badly. Here you begin to wonder how Starro couldn't be visible under his shirt. You think it would create a noticeable bulge that someone would notice, unless it can kind of go into his skin, maybe? I don't know. And you can't see it there. I mean, tear under his shirt, you can't see it anymore. Anyway. But, uh, yeah, and then in, in Kingdom Come, another uh, story where you see the... the the future versions of these heroes, and bears mentioning my probably my favorite comic book story of all time. Uh, he he aged somewhat similar to this in that he uh, he appeared somewhat older, although that was only twenty years in the future. And there they did that for a specific story reason, where they wanted to show that he had experienced the most humbling aspects of humanity, and so was no longer above humankind, and so on and so forth. Uh, DC One Million, which was a crossover from about uh, six or seven years ago, had Superman still alive roughly one million months from now in the, I believe, 853rd century, but don't quote me on that, where he had become this perfect golden being that was living in the sun, eternally young. And then lastly, uh, in Smallville, of all places, we saw a, a glimpse of Clark, his future... Well, we were supposed to see how he died. Instead, we just saw the cape fluttering off into into the cosmos, seeming to indicate that he would live forever and and travel the universe after perhaps all life on Earth had had sputtered out. So, this story is noteworthy for presenting another take on whether Superman can, in fact, age. Here we get into a discussion of how do we know where to find him, and Terry says that he he knows someone who knows where the Fortress of Solitude is, and of course, we found out in For the Man Who Has Everything, how Bruce learns of the location of the Fortress of Solitude. I heard someone remark, uh, speaking of the Static Shock crossover episode in which the Justice League appeared, that it was ironic that we didn't get our best glimpse of the Justice League Watchtower until we saw it on another show, in that case, uh, Static Shock. And much the same thing holds true here, where this is really the best look we've ever gotten at Superman's Fortress of Solitude in the DC Animated Universe, and we're getting that look not on Superman's show, but on a Batman show, ironically. But this is the first time we've had an extended sequence set there. Now we're about to see a series of, or, no, not yet we're not. I'm getting ahead of myself. Now first we've got a poop joke and then the Superman robots. I find it funny to think 
of Superman every time he decides to change his costume, <laughs> going around and undressing all his robots and making meticulously tailoring new costumes for them and dressing them. I don't know, maybe the costume is part of the robot. Maybe he has to build entirely new robots every time he gets a new costume. I don't know. They should have gone into that. Could have made it a three-parter. The Superman robots actually have their own history going way back in the comics when, you know, it seemed like every other month in either Superman or Action Comics or Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane or, or World's Finest or what have you, Superman would have to deceive either Lois or Jimmy or Lana or Perry or whoever else was in the comic that month as to his true identity, because every month would seemingly be someone else trying to prove that Clark Kent was Superman, and he would get Batman to dress up as Superman so no one would suspect, or he would do whatever, and then they just fell back, fell back on having it be robots every time. So here we have the first good look at Starro. Starro, as I believe someone mentions on the special features, is an appropriate villain for this episode because Starro is actually the very first Justice League of America villain from the comics. He appeared in the very first Justice League story, Brave and the Bold, number 28, 1960. The uh, the cover of that issue is sort of a classic. I have a statue that recreates that cover, actually, where it shows the five original main League members, Green Lantern, Flash, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and uh, John Jones, tackling Starro, and each of them attacking one of the five uh, points of the, the creature. Uh, in later appearances, Starro was depicted as the Star Conqueror. I guess someone decided, possibly Grant Morrison, since he created the name Star Conqueror, that Starro was a bit too corny. In his Star Conqueror appearances, he was larger and green. I remember one Howard Porter shot where he was big enough to encompass all of Hudson Bay, uh, but he would have smaller offshoots that would sort of attach themselves to the person's face, much as uh, Starro does later in this episode. And that sort of originated the parasitic nature of Starro, which is on full display in this episode. Until that time, he was just this big starfish guy, but... It wasn't until Grant Morrison recreated him as the Star Conqueror and all these little sort of tertiary Starros that the idea of him as sort of a facehugger parasite took root. Now here we're going to go into an extended sequence that shows scenes from the main man, a Superman two-parter. There's the Preserver, voiced by Sherman Howard in the original episode. It's interesting that we don't see Lobo in this flashback. I guess uh, having him in there would have just confused the issue would have confused viewers as to who this other character is. But uh, for those who haven't seen the main man, this whole sequence is just basically reanimated, mind you, but but uh, scenes from the main man two-parter, one of uh, some of the earliest Superman the Animated Series episodes. And in fact, in that episode, we did see Starro in one of the Preserver's cages in the background, setting up way back then, that uh, Superman would have taken Starro and put him in his zoo in the Fortress of Solitude. Now here we come upon uh, the moment that another moment that Bruce Timm dislikes, although we see in the special features that he's perhaps misremembering aspects of it, where we see uh, Aqua Girl say that Starro has been on Superman for years, but we see here that Superman looks basically the same as he does during the rest of the episode when Starro attaches himself to him. So it's not like Starro's been on him since, you know, the day after Destroyer. 
it would seem more likely that, okay, well, maybe Star has been on him for years, but maybe only two or three years, as opposed to, you know, 40 or 50. Because the idea of Superman losing a huge chunk of his life like that and being a pawn for that period of time is really disheartening. So I think Bruce, Tim, and I both prefer to think of it the, the use of the word years to only indicate maybe two or three years. There's also the fact that wouldn't this seem to imply that Superman doesn't have any close family, doesn't have a wife, doesn't have any children with whom he still is close with, or else wouldn't they have noticed him acting differently? Wouldn't they have noticed this huge, you know, bulge under his shirt, all these other things? And in fact, Bruce Tim did want to have a scene that shows Superman caring for an elderly invalid Lois Lane to show that, you know, although he has not aged as much, that he did marry Lois and, and now is basically her caregiver. Uh, but the idea of a still relatively youthful Superman uh, being romantically involved with like a 85-year-old Lois Lane apparently weirded out all the other producers, and so Bruce Tim was voted down in that respect. But I would have liked to have seen that, because, as I said, the fact that no one notices that Starro was on Superman seems to indicate that he doesn't really have any close family, which is kind of sad, given that even Bruce, and uh, as when we get to epilogue, is shown as, as being somewhat... His life is, is somewhat redeemed through the fact that he has Terry as his his son that can carry on for him. If Superman has nothing of that sort, then it seems kind of odd that Batman would get a happier ending than Superman. I guess you can think that maybe Lois, he did get together with Lois, but she died. You know, as as is quite possible, given that this is 50 years later, or that she's just not seen in this episode, or whatever. Now we get to the great part where... Uh, Superman chases Batman here. Bruce has a line where he says, never did trust those boom tubes, which is a callback to Twilight, or, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, led to the little aside in Twilight where we showed that the boom tubes make Bruce sick to his stomach. He comes off very macho here. As, oh, the boom tubes are untrustworthy and, you know, crazy alien science, but in fact they just make him woozy. You get that great speeding bullet line. And Bruce Tim again mentions how creepy it is to have Superman floating upright like this. But of course, there's no reason for him to fly, you know, horizontal to the ground, you know, one arm at a side, the other arm straight forward, not, you know, cliche superhero pose. He can defy gravity. He can fly in any position he wants. But this just underlines the inhuman pseudo-Superman nature of, of the starro-controlled starro Superman. And the fact that they're playing this, Christopher Carter, I believe, is playing this twisted version of the Superman theme in this sort of minor key. Almost sounds kind of like the Bizarro theme, actually. Uh, drives that home even more. Now, here in a second, Terry's going to... Uh, shock the Starro and induce it into coming off of Superman. Superman's going to have a line, kind of like, you know, where am I, what's going on? And as I mentioned in part one, this seems to indicate that Superman doesn't remember what happened when Starro was controlling him, because otherwise he would know that he's in the Arctic, and this is Terry McGinnis, who has just freed him from Starro and all this other stuff. Um... So that indicates that Superman can't remember those years, but then... 
how does he know who Terry is? You'd think he would, you know, that would require some splainin'. And yet he and Terry are fighting side by side like old comrades in the very next scene. I guess you can sort of say that Terry gave him the short version and said, yeah, I'm, I'm taking over for Bruce. We've got to go back because the League is about to be taken over by alien parasites. But it seems kind of weird that that he's not asking that question immediately and that he's you know smiling at Terry and chatting with him. But whatever. like that they're almost deceived by this, because you can see immediately that there's no Starro on them. I mean, they don't fall for it for long, but Warhawk's about to fall for it. I kind of like that they have all the classic moments in here. You know, you've got bat- that old cliche Batman versus Superman bit, but then you've also got Batman and Superman teaming up against the other, so you've got kind of a world's finest bit going on again. Here Terry has some weird things on his teeth that look kind of like braces, and for a long time I'm like, okay, why does Terry have braces? But then I realize that he's underwater for like five minutes here, so they must be like some futuristic rebreather system. Then here in a second, Superman's, yeah, he's going to bring down the fortress on Terry. And Superman says he knows what he was getting into. Now, that's pretty cold, especially coming from Superman. So that further underscores what I mentioned in part one about how his darker costume and and more weathered look was supposed to portray a darker, more clinically detached Superman, more in the vein of his his father Jor-El than than we'd seen him previously. But it uh, it still kind of comes out of nowhere a little bit, but I suppose this is the first time in both episodes that we're seeing the true Superman do really anything, so we have no reason to believe he should be acting one way or another yet. Now, because I probably won't have time to discuss them at length as they're happening, I'm going to mention a couple of things from the end of the episode here. Uh, They mention, when they're trying to get Terry to join the League, that the old Batman never made it past part-timer. That really tied their hands when they came to do Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, because despite the fact that Batman was in more episodes than most of the other main seven, they still had to put in a line every now and then where he said, oh, you know, I'm just a part-timer, i got to get back to Gotham and all this other stuff, which, while in character, was got kind of annoying after a while, but they had to, for continuity's sake, they couldn't have him become a full-time member or else Bard's line here would uh, would make no sense. The other thing I wanted to mention was the very last line of the episode where Terry says maybe he and I have something in common after all and Superman says more than you know son Um, now of course at the time that was just intended to mean exactly what it seems to mean that Superman is saying well you know you both have 
you know, the warrior's hard and you're both true heroes and so on, even if you don't realize that you both, you know, you're both cut from the same cloth kind of thing, which is, you know, a, a very nice sentiment and everything. But in retrospect, knowing what we do about Terry's biological parentage, they've established in the comics that Superman can actually see people's DNA using his microscopic vision. The fact that when Super when Terry takes Starro off of Superman, Superman would be looking at him for the first time and would be thinking, wait a minute, who is this kid? He might use all of his, marshal all of his powers to determine who Terry is, might have looked at his genetic structure and might in fact realize immediately that he is Bruce's biological son. And so in retrospect, I like to think that that has sort of a double meaning, although of course was not intended to, and it's quite possible I'm reaching to a ridiculous degree, which would not surprise me. So I timed that pretty well. That's the call. Thanks for listening.